Welcome to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and joining us on the podcast today, Dr. Beata Sander, award-winning scientist at UHN's Toronto General Hospital Research Institute and a leading researcher in the field of health economics and infectious diseases. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Sander's research is required reading in health and political circles, providing predictive modeling on everything from masking to ICU capacity. Dr. Beata Sander, welcome to Behind the Breakthrough. Thanks, Christian. Happy to be here. Let's start big picture, if you don't mind, the field of health economics. Talk to us about how it originated and why do we need it in healthcare? It's really a field that is looking at what are new interventions, new technologies, basically anything we do within the healthcare system provides good value for money. And that's needed because generally, I think no budgets are unlimited. So no matter where you look, there are always some kind of constraints. So nobody has unlimited money. And so generally, policymakers uh, will need to assess if there are new technologies, new drugs, new vaccines, a new program in terms of how well does it work? Is it effective? Is it safe? But then also think about what do we get for the money we spend in any type of interventions. So getting this idea in terms of bang for the buck, what um, are the implications of introducing a new technology to the system? Do we need to change how we provide service? So what are kind of all the downstream events that would kind of happen with that new intervention? And that's kind of what we are looking at in terms of health outcomes, but also cost. I just want to get a sense then, Beata, when did this start to emerge as a field that was adding value to healthcare? In different um, different times in different countries. I've been around for a long time now already too. <laughs> I'm getting much older, but for sure, maybe I would say 30, 40 years. In the big scheme of things, uh, if you look at science, it's a fairly new field. And Ontario was one of the first provinces to actually really implement this idea of what falls under health technology assessment and economic evaluation and use this type of information for this policy decision making. So whether a new drug should be publicly funded or not. And so it's been taking off a lot in publicly funded healthcare systems like the UK, uh, Australia, Canada, where we very carefully look at value for money. And I would say over the last year, so it started with technologies and drugs, but kind of the scope keeps getting broader and broader. So we do now, for example, at the national level, also look at value for money for vaccines. Uh, There are many more interventions, for example, in public health that we didn't look at previously, but uh, that are now of interest in terms of making sure we use our resources as wisely as we possibly can. A good illustration of how health economics works is one of your first papers, I understand, arising from your 2011 PhD thesis, where you assessed Ontario's move to free flu vaccine for everyone in the province. Prior to your analysis, no one knew if this program, which was introduced in 2000, was beneficial because it had never been evaluated. So what made you look into this? We basically knew that influenza vaccines generally are effective, also some years a bit more, some years a bit less, but generally it's a good thing. 
We also knew that there are some population groups that are specifically at high risk. So people that have comorbidities, uh, people of older age, healthcare workers are at higher risk of being infected. And so most jurisdictions already had a program, uh, which we call a targeted program, where basically the influenza vaccination was publicly funded for those at high risk, which generally would be individuals 65 years and older, often people that take care of others or are caregivers for people with chronic medical conditions, but then also healthcare workers. And like you say, so Ontario was the first province to introduce a universal program. And we had done at that point some work that's looked at the effectiveness of this program. And we did find that it seemed to improve overall population health. Of course, Right there are other people that are not targeted for the vaccinations, but that would also get sick. So you could be under 65 and get infected with influenza, of course, and you could have severe disease and you could be hospitalized. So kind of opening up uh, immunization to everyone would prevent disease and more people. And what we think another kind of effect of opening up the program to everyone would be that you could actually increase vaccine coverage rates in everyone. So not just the ones that it was promoted to in, in this more kind of tailored program, but kind of just taking away barriers. And so everyone can basically just show up easily and get that vaccine. But it wasn't clear whether it really is good value for money, because in terms of absolute numbers of people, so we would vaccinate many, many more people, uh, but it wasn't really quite clear whether we would get enough additional benefit to offset the cost of that program. What did you find? Well, we did find that I uh, mentioned already that the program was working so we could improve vaccine coverage rates, which then actually means that the program would reduce the number of cases by about two thirds. We also estimated that it would reduce a uh, number of deaths from influenza by more than a quarter. And so that means uh, even so the upfront cost of vaccinating more people is higher. So they're almost double compared to a targeted program. The downstream costs in terms of avoiding hospitalization almost offset that cost. And so it was something that we would consider good value for money. This paper of yours, like based on your PhD thesis, had quite an impact. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I think that at the time, most uh, Canadian jurisdictions, most provinces had a targeted program. And so following uh, this analysis, it uh, was recommended and rolled out uh, in many, many Canadian jurisdictions. I think it was 10 at the time, and, and I'm not sure about the exact number now. But so what's this combination of the preceding study kind of showing there is additional benefit? Uh, we can ramp up vaccine coverage and there are costs avoided uh, down the line. And so it's good value for money for a province to introduce this type of program. And was also um, part of the week off was informing the recommendation by the CDC, who then also advised a universal program every one, six months uh, and older should be vaccinated against influenza. And uh, yes. This was in the U.S.? That was in the U.S., Yeah. Yes. That's kind of fascinating to have such impact with like your PhD thesis paper. What did you think of that? I'm not sure if I thought much about that at the time. I think it's always um, 
So first, I should say it's never a single paper that leads to any policy change, right? Uh, I think there's always a body of evidence that comes together at the right time in the right way. And that is reviewed by some expert committee and then there's some deliberation and then there is a decision. Of course, I mean, you know, it's just feels amazing to be able to make a contribution to that process, to be able to provide one piece of evidence that kind of goes into those deliberations and to kind of help those committees to make a decision. And as a health economist, of course, it's amazing to also see when this type of information is used in addition to all the clinical information that we already have. All right, let's turn to your research and the COVID-19 pandemic. Actually, I want to start several months prior to the pandemic, October 2019, when you give a presentation that I find is really prescient. This was at a UHN event called Science in the Six. And by the way, to everyone out there listening, it's on our UHN YouTube page for anyone who'd like to watch. Now, at this event, Beata, you are profoundly accurate in foreshadowing what was about to unfold around the world. I'm curious back then, was the likelihood of this pandemic a certainty in your mind? Pretty much. Um, I think I was pretty certain uh, that a pandemic will occur in my lifetime. And we had seen already a couple, right? Like it's not that we haven't seen pandemics in our lifetime. I think we all we all experienced uh, SARS, H1N1. Uh, we knew at least about Zika. It wasn't Zika in Canada, but it did spread around the world. Uh, there was an Ebola outbreak. Like I think things had happened. Uh, of course, the optimist in me always hopes like maybe not, maybe not later. It's kind of later, it's later, it's later. But I think what I hadn't maybe fully grasped even at the time was the extent of what evolved now uh, with COVID-19. I think, like I said, we had this experience from H1N1, SARS, especially where I think we were able to kind of contain it. So the spread was a bit different or the severity wasn't as great. And so, yeah, the extent of what we are experiencing right now, I think that was probably kind of, I'd say, beyond my own imagination. Even so, we kind of working with it and we looking back in history, looking at the 1918 pandemic, and we know it's devastating and we know what's coming could be devastating, but to kind of lift through it, it's just very, very different. Absolutely. Okay, so during the pandemic, you're leading Ontario's COVID-19 modeling collaborative, where you provide the province modeling on all types of scenarios and their potential impacts, which then inform the province's public health decision-making. I'm curious at the outset, back in March, 2020, what directives were you given? No directives at all. So I, I guess maybe going back to how uh, we started in my own team, and I say there are many, many teams that provide this type of modeling, right? So we're one of many. How we started, uh, I can tell you, was March 13, Friday afternoon, sitting in my office with my postdoc talking about COVID, of course, and what's going on in the world. And as modelers, you thought, well, you know, we really should do something like we just this curiosity of how this could play out in Ontario. And why don't we just do something kind of quickly, maybe reject one of the models we have and then call in another one of my PhD students who had some model that we thought might be helpful. And so we keep talking and then bring in uh, one of my other students who is also a critical care physician. So we kept talking about, right, what could we do? 
And that was at the time when we came, all this news came in from Italy, which was really disturbing, right? Like we kind of saw ICUs overflowing and kind of our interest was in this type of planning. And so Saturday, I was supposed to go on vacation because it was March break. And needless to say, that was zero vacation. But so we started modeling and on Wednesday, we had something ready. So we started basically Saturday morning and we had our very first version ready on Wednesday morning and that went out. And yeah, the rest is history. Not quite yet, but that's how it started. No directions. Okay, so I'm curious then, as day by day, week by week unfolds, What are the what if your group is deciding are the most important to model? What's kind of, I started very uh, kind of, I would say rough almost, right? Like at the time, if you go back to March, 2020, and I just spoke about Italy. So that was kind of the scary example. And then we said, okay, what if something like Italy is happening in Ontario? So what would that look like in terms of our, ICU capacity, like how many patients would need would be admitted to hospital? How many patients would need ICU care? How many patients would need ventilation? And how does this relate to the capacity we currently have in the system? And of course, there were other examples. So Italy was kind of the scary example at the time because, uh, I mean, we all know the pictures that came out of Italy, the reports from the clinicians, so on. There were other countries like South Korea, which had done really, really well uh, at that time. So we kind of looked at this and thought, okay, what if we follow the trajectory of South Korea? What if we follow the trajectory of Italy? What if it's kind of something in between? And that's how it started. And then over time, it just became more refined and refined. uh, And then we would look at different types of interventions and so on. But so, yeah, in the beginning... That's basically it. What if, <laughs> yeah, in terms of uh, potential trajectory? So it's like you were self-assigned. Can you can you walk us through the process? Like, how do you get access to the data and gather what you need to power your projections? So it very much evolved over time, right? So in the very beginning, there wasn't a lot of data. So we very much looked at experiences internationally, and that. Um, kind of data came from any type of reports. So it could be government reports, a lot of media reports. So it's something we would have never done in the past, kind of looking at media reporting on number of cases or risk of hospitalization and so on. I know then kind of there were all those grassroots type of initiatives where people got together and collected and scraped the data off the internet and put it together in an easier format that we're able to download. People started uh, putting out all their studies in preprints. And so things improved over time. And then over, I think it didn't take too long. Then we had started to have Ontario data and it wasn't great in the beginning, but it got better over time. And then I think I should... uh, absolutely mentioned the modeling consensus table that was founded. I think we started end of March, uh, mid-March. And with that, there was an agreement uh, and still is an agreement with the Ministry of Health to access data. So basically, where the modelers that are part of that table have access to data that we can use for our predictions and then uh, basically uh, also able to report and just ethics approval and everything for that. But so I think there's been 
and tremendous data source, especially in the beginning. I think right now, most of the data is publicly available, so it's not really that much more in, in terms of data that we would have access to. But I think this was pretty um, unique and different to how research has been done and how those relationships have worked. And in that, you kind of, um, within the ministry, that they were able to set up this portal where they would put in data and we can download that data, for example, on case numbers, hospitalizations, or this kind of stuff. So prior to the pandemic, in your research, it's all theoretical. Now you're working essentially in real time. And it's a crisis. I mean, it's worldwide. Talk to us about the pace of research, because you have a day job too, correct? Yeah, I do. <laughs> you know, we, I mean, most of the scientists, you already have a very demanding day job. Like it's not a nine to five day job to start with. And then you kind of just uh, add on another one. So I guess, you know, it, what really, really changed is what you said, the pace of research. I think, you know, we've always done a lot of research that was very policy relevant, but just a very, very different time frame. So now we are talking about days instead of weeks or months or years. And that's what makes a huge difference. And so it's not just, I think, so there is the pace of research, but then there's also the pace of, what I would say, knowledge to action, whereas sometimes, you know, pre-COVID or non-COVID work, you do your research, it takes maybe a year or two or three, kind of publish your paper. Some kind of committee may pick it up, look at it, make a decision, right? And so now it's, you build your model in a couple of days or weeks, and then we refine it. But as soon as the output or the findings of that are done, like you run it, you communicate it and a decision is made. So it's just the whole process is so much faster. And yeah, that's kind of nerve fracking sometimes. But I think after a year, we got, after a year and a half, I think we kind of got used to it. What was it like to generate this incredibly important work, hand it over to decision makers, and then sort of what you were saying there, a day or two later, you see government react based on what you had generated? Humbling, uh, for sure. Uh, scary sometimes uh, in terms of like questioning yourself, like just, you know, did we really do everything correctly? I think there are huge implications on this type of analysis. So it's affecting the entire province. It's comforting in a way that generally decisions are not made based on one model only, but that there are multiple models and people look at it from different angles and people review it and so on. But again, the time is so compressed that it is a bit scary, but it's also very rewarding, as I said, like I think as in pre-COVID times to be actually able to contribute that evidence and to kind of remind yourself that, you know, if we wouldn't have had this, then we wouldn't have to make decisions without it. So, so, so I think either way, I think we're better off with some kind of data, even so it's imperfect. And even maybe the ranges are wide, right? Like from everything may be okay to, it yeah. may be disastrous, but it's still kind of putting goalposts or, you know, putting something there that yeah. you didn't have. And so it's helpful, I hope. To that end, is there, some of this can feel overwhelming. 
the modeling, especially when you talk about, say, the worst case scenario of those goalposts that you're talking about. Is there a science to consuming or interpreting your modeling so that we don't feel overwhelmed and make good decisions? I'm not sure there's a science to it, but I guess the way I approach it is that you kind of want to look at the big picture, right? So what do the predictions look like? Is that next wave or, you know, whatever it is predicted to be greater or smaller than what we have experienced so far? What are the measures we can possibly take? So I wouldn't focus exact on exact numbers because that's not what the modeling is for. It's really looking at big picture. I think the other thing to consider is that most of the modeling kind of take a baseline and then predict forward without any further intervention. So so there are usually different scenarios. One is kind of, so what if we stay as is? What if we open up more? What if we pull back a bit? And so we say stay at this, and you know, that curve kind of keeps creeping up, 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 and up. Then in real life, at some point, you think someone is going to do something. So that may be policy uh, kind of pulling back and say, well, maybe we need to go back one step in our opening, or maybe we need to do uh, some lockdown or some kind of intervention. But it's also individual behavior. So people in the absence of government intervention, people will also pull back. And we know that now from behavioral sciences. So then people don't go to the restaurant. Parents may pull out their kids from school. And so in that sense, something kind of always happens. So this kind of really severe type of scenarios usually just don't happen for that reason. Right. So and that's not expected, but it is kind of laying everything out there of this. What if we don't do anything? Where are we going to end up to kind of saying, well, yeah, we probably do want to do something before we end up there. Right. I'm curious, the modeling you provide can sometimes be a source of friction because the modeling, as you say, can influence policy. Policy can then be implemented that, as you say, pulls back, which can result in effects on the economy. And people sometimes then go back to the modeling as being the cause of people's, say, suffering during the pandemic in terms of the the pullback and the stages. What's your response to that? I think we learned very early on that one cannot separate health, public health, and the economy. And that the two of them really go together. So if the population is not healthy, then the economy doesn't work either. And if we kind of let the pandemic run its course and then maybe have to pull back later and harder, then that's generally worse. And I think even right after the first wave, there was already a report by the World Bank who kind of looked at what were the mitigation strategies in the different countries and how did that affect the economy. And generally, countries who were better able to mitigate the pandemic really did better. And then part of uh, that report already and what we have seen is really, again, going back to human behavior. So if there is no policy, humans will pull back and and, uh, start to withdraw, like not uh, going to restaurants and other things. And what they found is that actually this is often worse um, and takes longer 
than when we have some kind of restrictions in place. So it's not necessarily better to kind of wait for this human behavior changes uh, for the economy. It's interesting. It's hard to think of this pandemic without your work, your research, providing insight and guidance to government. And there's such a sense of urgency to all of this. How do you navigate? Like, do you feel pressure? I feel pressure, but it's more out of, I would say, a feeling of responsibility. And knowing that myself and my team and all the other modeling teams that we have the expertise to provide knowledge and to provide this type of evidence that is helpful and that can lead to uh, potentially decisions that impact the pandemic trajectory in a positive way. And so that would save life, that would make things better. So I think there's two things going on. We're like uh, this sense of responsibility uh, to uh, the public, uh, to decision makers, to all kinds of stakeholders, but to the greater public good, I say. And then there's, of course, also just scientific curiosity, right? So, I mean, that's why you become a scientist. So, yes, I'm curious how things are going to play out over the next four months. And, you know, if I have the knowledge and expertise to kind of look into that, of course, I will. Like, I can't keep myself from doing that. Like, it's just impossible. I'm yeah. curious, like, you're you're a mom, you're a daughter, you're a, a wife. Would you ever allow yourself to react to the, the model you were revealing Generally, yeah, of course, I'm worried. I'm worried just the same as everyone else, right? And sometimes I'm not sure if it's kind of better or worse to kind of um, maybe have a better sense or but kind of know ahead of time what I think will be coming. I often feel, you know, so once the things are in the news, it's not new anymore to me, like, right? So I think I have a little bit of that. Detachment kind of, or... No, I think not detachment. I think I just have a bit of a lead, I say, you know, like because I look into that, it's my every day, all day. That's what I do. And I mean, we do the modeling, right? So I kind of feel like, like I know what is, or I think I know what's going to come. <laughs> of course, things may play out differently, but so far, I think the modeling's been pretty much right on. So I know it kind of worries me and it makes, me sometimes maybe a bit impatient as well in terms of like okay you know there is going to be a certain wave so something needs to be done and and then things just seem to move too slowly too slow even though everything moves so fast right so at the same time I'm not sure how to frame it but so generally on a personal level of course I'm worried just the same I think on a professional level sometimes it's hard to kind of have all the stuff like in your hand, like not in your hand in terms of what's happening, but kind of having the predictions, having that knowledge, kind of looking a little bit into that crystal ball and then kind of not being the decision maker, right? So that's, uh, I will hand it over and then others have to make the tough decisions. I want to go back to Science in the Sixth another time in the presentation where you mentioned when you talk about the potential for a pandemic and you concluded that the poor would suffer the most and it kind of has played out throughout the pandemic, was there any way to avoid that prophecy? I think there's always a way to avoid that. I'm not sure there is the 
political will to avoid this. And that's the problem. And that's the same locally or nationally, as well as internationally. I think in Ontario, we have seen and you know, been involved in work. So we have work that shows that essential workers, people who live in multi-general regional households, have been have disproportionately been affected by this pandemic. And that was unfortunately expected because as an essential worker, you're so much more exposed to the virus. And in multi-generational households, it can transmit so much more easily to more people. And often those are also population groups who have a greater proportion of comorbidities. So also putting them at higher risk of severe disease. In some of the work we did that informed our hotspot vaccination strategy was with this in mind in terms of leveling the playing field a little bit. But of course, there's always more you can do. And then internationally, just look at the vaccine rollout, whereas so many countries have literally no vaccine. And we are talking about booster doses. So I think there's a lot of inequity and unfortunately, the poor did suffer the most and are still suffering the most. And yes, there are ways to avoid that or to minimize that, but it needs the political will to do so. Your modeling throughout the pandemic, do you believe it saved lives? Uh, yes, I do believe it saved life. I think it's important, like again, to kind of map out what could happen to inform action. And so I would think that if you contribute to mapping out those trajectories that then will lead to action, that in some way you would contribute to saving lives and and minimizing uh, the pandemic impact. I'm curious what the pandemic experience has taught you thus far about how we should invest research and preparedness dollars. Yeah, I wish there was more investment for preparedness, and I should focus on research uh, primarily, but I think there hasn't been a lot of funding into research to build capacity to do this type of work on the fly when it's needed, but also to build, to do actual research to inform pandemic plans. I think we have had reasonable pandemic plans for an influenza virus. We were not really prepared for something that wasn't quite influenza, I would say. Most of the plans, for example, assumed that we will have a vaccine within three to six months. And so that did not happen despite the vaccine being developed really, really fast. I think the other thing we should probably, uh, we really need to invest in our data system. So I think the this jointness of all the different data sources. So everyone is kind of counting something and someone has data on critical care and some other buckets, it's the reportable disease data and the case numbers and then hospitals somewhere else altogether. And so to kind of have those data systems that can be accessed uh, by scientists quickly and that are all connected already and linked are crucial. I think not having had that in the beginning was challenging. And I think the last thing I do want to mention is what also kind of was really uh, important throughout the pandemic is to have scientists who speak multiple languages in a way of 
being able to collaborate with other scientists across disciplines because this is absolutely multidisciplinary. So you cannot kind of sit within your small area. But then also experts who can speak with decision makers and with the public and kind of convey that information so that it makes sense to others. I think that's another piece in terms of more, goes more towards education and how do we train scientists? How, we, how do we train our students that may go into this type of, of work? Do you think there will be another pandemic in our lifetime? Unfortunately, yes, I think so. I don't know what the extent will be. I don't know how it will look like. I kind of hope there is nothing like COVID again in our lifetime. I hope we are better prepared next time. But unfortunately, I think there will be another pandemic here. You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Coteng. We're speaking with Dr. Beata Sander, award-winning scientist at UHN's Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. Dr. Sanders' pioneering research is made possible in part thanks to generous donor support. If you'd like to contribute to Dr. Sanders' groundbreaking medical research, please go to www.uhnfoundation.ca forward slash podcast. Now, Beata, you were born in East Germany, grew up in a small town called Lichtenberg, just southwest of Dresden. Your dad was a veterinarian, and I understand starting at around age seven, you would often join him on calls as he went from farm to farm. How did this early exposure to medical practice, say, influence your career aspirations? Yeah, initially, I would say it was just fun to do. (laughs) Um, I think... I guess um, what did get me hooked was really two things. So I think maybe initially more the humanitarian part in terms of being able to do good, but also then the science part of how does it actually work? So how do the drugs work? How does it, I think both things. But then we, I think even in high school already, I kind of pivoted more to kind of humans and medicine in general. And I fondly remember really working as a high school student in a long-term care home uh, in our community. And I think this also kind of really shaped where I was going in terms of my interest in medicine in general. So logically then that holds because you went on after high school to a nursing degree You became an ICU nurse, and the backdrop to this time in your life is the fall of the Iron Curtain across Eastern Europe. And then in late 89, 1989, you watched the fall of the Berlin Wall. This upheaval in your country, what effect do you think it had on your career trajectory? I think it had a massive effect of my career trajectory. I mean, obviously, I think I wouldn't be in Canada. I wouldn't be here now if that had not happened. With the fall of the Berlin Wall, like having suddenly all those opportunities, like that, I had never ever even dared to dream about feeling all this energy and having that opportunity to just start new in some way. At the same time, also be honest, be really confused about like all the things you could possibly do and that you had like literally no clue about where your parents uh, couldn't even advise you on what to do because the whole country was in that situation. But I still, I, you know, I thought, okay, 
maybe I'm not going to be a nurse for the rest of my life. Uh, maybe there are other things that I want to do. And so I went back to school and here I am. It, it's amazing to think though of that pivot, right? Like, so you obviously went and exposed yourself to other avenues in healthcare. Like you went to Australia, you were studying in Papua New Guinea at one point. What brought you to Toronto and then UHN? This is back around 2017. Yeah, I think at that time, so I basically like uh, maybe just one step back, I had my nursing degree, I'd worked as a nurse in an ICU, I pivoted to do um, business, uh, I did an MBA and economics, and then I kind of um, worked in this field, I started working in a field of health economics. So I had a master's degree, I was working in Germany, I presented at conferences, and I met people who were from Toronto, and I kind of started talking, and it sounded like, wow, this is like a great opportunity. So there are opportunities to work in a world-class center like UHN. There was the option to pursue a PhD, which I was interested in, and Canada already, as I mentioned, I mean, there was a Canada had a history in Ontario specifically in really using this type of evidence for decision making. So there was history of health technology assessment. There was a history of health economics. There was a very and there was and is a very, very strong uh, academic program in terms of training and people that do this type of work. So there is um I think it just seemed the right place to be. And um, I'm glad it happened. And I came and, yeah. Talk to us about mentorship over the course of your career, the role it's played in, in shaping your career. In terms of shaping my career, I think what the biggest differences always came about when mentors gave me opportunities. So, and trust in my capabilities. So one one of my very first projects uh, was back in Australia and I was a graduate student working with a health economist. And the government came to him and asked him about actually to model what if there was an influenza pandemic. And he said, oh, Beata, you want to do that? And I was like, I don't know, never build a model. I don't know how to do that. I said, oh, you can do it. It's okay. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And and so that's kind of really how it actually all started. So so with someone who gave me an opportunity and who trusted me to be able to do it, trusted in my capacity and my abilities. And so this kind of is something that I experienced throughout my career. So there are always these milestones like then, you know, meeting someone at a conference who talked about Toronto and kind of getting together and making it happen. And so giving me also that opportunity and have a supervisor who took me on and again, gave me an opportunity. So in a way, that's what I'm trying to do really with my own mentees that they all have their own journey. They have their own goals. And my job really is to be there to encourage them to listen, to facilitate, to provide opportunities. And generally, I would say, you know, really uh, to support the mentees the best that I can, like their success really is my success. So I guess that's how I approach it. Uh, We are a team. And so whatever is the best for them will be the best for me. A part of research involves obstacles, failure, We're not really taught in life or in school how to deal with failure. How do you approach it? It's part of academic life. So it's happening all the time. 
How do I approach it in general? I say, take a deep breath. I know it sounds very cliche, but that's really how it is. Try to put it aside for a, a bit. You know, you didn't get that grant or your paper was rejected or, you know, whatever it is, just close that email and then look at it again, maybe the next day when you kind of cool down. Rent if you need to. I mean, we do that all the time. Have a good friend or colleagues and just complain the hell out of it. And that's okay. If it's a major setback, I have to tell you, I love to clean the bathroom or the kitchen or something <laughs> where you actually see, you know, you achieve something after you did that. And I still do that, actually. But I also kind of realize it's just part of the academic life. And I think, you know, not to see that actually as a failure, but as part of your growth. And there is almost always some feedback that is really, really helpful. And so pick the stuff basically that's helpful, ignore the rest and move on. And, you know, you'll be better next time around. And it's okay, I think. The COVID-19 pandemic has given medical science and research, it seems, an unprecedented public profile. It almost feels like once in a lifetime opportunity to demonstrate how intertwined research is with healthcare. I'm wondering when the pandemic eventually fades, will medical science also fade back into the background? I think it will be mixed. Uh, of course, I don't know what exactly will happen. I think there is a need for the scientists to kind of go back to a bit of reasonable uh, pace I think there's the pace, but there's also the depth of how you do research. So if you're kind of running that fast, you cannot go into a whole lot of depth, which is also needed. So there's different ways of conducting research. So I think to some degree, we will need to actually kind of fade into the background a bit so that we can kind of hunker down and do the critical research that is needed and that needs to be done. I would hope that it not disappears entirely from the public because I think the type of research we do is about public health. So it's important to every single one in our community, in our society. So I think this kind of openness that came with the pandemic is generally, it's a good thing. And I hope it, it stays to some degree. As you enter, say, mid-career, Beata, and you reflect on your success to date, are there lessons that you can share with that might help young people just setting out in their career journey? So I always say, you know, you have to do what you really have fun doing, something you enjoy uh, in your career and something you're passionate about and something you really, really care about. It's a long career, like it's so <laughs> you want to have fun. And to not worry too much about whether you go a straight path or not. And so my experience is absolutely not a straight path, but you kind of pick up experiences along the way that come together at some point, you know, in the best way possible. So I thought, you know, especially with this pandemic, but even prior to that, so kind of having my nursing background and then having an kind of economics background and kind of almost stumbling actually into this field of health economics, which I didn't know about when I was in high school. I mean, who knows this type of stuff exists, right? 
And it kind of brought it all together in the best way because I can use my clinical background to better understand the problems I'm looking at. I, I hope it helps me. Or I think it helps me to also collaborate broadly with clinicians. You know, I think, and then I worked in different positions. I worked in university and I worked in government and or in I worked with public health Ontario, so Armstrong government, not within the ministry. But I think this experience has also helped me, especially during the pandemic, to kind of have all these connections, kind of know the people, know what's going on inside to kind of just be better able to collaborate broadly, really. There's an author, uh, Simon Sinek, who talks and, and writes about leadership and motivation. And he says, People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Why do you do what you do? I think that is the humanitarian side of things. And that changed from being a nurse and kind of being, you know, it's more at an individual level in terms of helping people in general to the work I do now, which informs policy and it's more on a population level. And the other piece to it is really just scientific curiosity. So that's why I do it. Yeah. During that Science in the Six talk you gave uh, back in 2019, you also talked about how humbling it is to see the impact of your work. And today, still humbling? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I'm not sure if it's possibly even more, just given the pace like we spoke, that we spoke about earlier, right? Like it's everything is happening so fast. And the implications are very immediate and very, very large, potentially. So, yes, absolutely still humbling. And finally, Beata, what's next for you? What should we be looking out for over the next while? Yeah, well, more research, for sure. I mean, uh, COVID, COVID, unfortunately, isn't done and probably not for quite a while. So there will be ongoing work in terms of the modeling and informing kind of the day-to-day or month-to-month decision-making. We are right now as today, we are in the fourth wave. So there are things going to come for the fall. But there's also the longer term kind of plans. Again, there's more COVID research in terms you're looking at. Long COVID, for example, there is research that hopefully will be informing at some point how we organize our healthcare system. I think there are things that um, will need to change and the system has already changed during the pandemic and kind of how we can maintain maybe some of those things. And going back to non-COVID things, which will also be fun and, you know, fall is coming. So I'll be teaching, I'll be training our students, which is one of my favorite things to do, really. So other than research, yeah. Dr. Beata Sander, award-winning scientist at UHN's Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. Thank you for sharing your groundbreaking research with us and continued success. Thanks so much, Christian. And it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks. Dr. Sanders' research is made possible in part thanks to generous donor support. If you'd like to contribute to her pioneering medical research, please go to www.uhnfoundation, that's all one word, uhnfoundation.ca forward slash podcast. And for more on the podcast, go to our website, www.behindthebreakthrough.ca and let us know what you think. We love feedback. That's a wrap for this edition of Behind the Breakthrough a podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Thanks for listening.